Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here on this crisp, cool fall morning. Some of you are glistening. Um, you know, I think somebody who had a very powerful computer or way too much time on their hands and a little bit of OCD figured out that uh, Jesus was asked 183 different questions in the Gospels. Now, a fair number of those questions really weren't questions at all. They were setups. They were traps. They were asked by the religious leaders so that Jesus would answer incorrectly and fail. And if the truth be told, there wasn't any good way for him to answer the questions. No matter what he said, he was going to be in trouble. And that's, I think, why we only find three times in the New Testament when someone asked Jesus a question that he answered them directly. One of those times is the passage we're going to look at this morning in Luke 10, and Jesus answers with a question and then proceeds to directly answer the man in this account. So one day Jesus was teaching, and an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what's written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And the man answered, and it was a good answer. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly right, Jesus said. Do this, and you will live. And then the legal expert wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, just who is my neighbor? Imagine that. <laughs> a legal expert looking for a loophole. Probably never happened anywhere else, right? The essence of his question was pretty simple. What he was really asking Jesus was, what kind of people do I have to serve? I mean, seriously, what demographic, what people group, what problems do I have to address in this world in order to inherit eternal life? That's a horrible question. That's a horrible attitude. It's, it's a horrible perspective on life. This legal expert lived in a time in history in the city of Jerusalem. He lived in a time when poverty was widespread, when tons of homeless people lived on the streets of Jerusalem and diseases were running rampant. By his question, this lawyer shows that in his heart, he's not capable of seeing the real issues and needs in his world, and he's not capable of understanding it either. Hey, uh, I honestly, you read this story about um, this religious expert questioning Jesus. I don't think there was any shred of him that was actually looking for an answer to his question. It's pretty clear from the text. All he wanted to do was justify the narcissistic behavior in his life. Now, it's reasonable to believe that if Jesus would have engaged him in a debate, in a public dialogue, that he could have gained a fair amount of religious and political capital. He had something to gain by doing that, but Jesus, instead of directly answering him, instead told him a parable. Now, if you're not familiar with parables, I need to just define what they are for just a minute. We're going to be looking at five of them over the next few weeks, all the way through Labor Day. Stories that Jesus told, and the stories 
could be real, they could be made up, it really doesn't matter. They were just there to illustrate a point, to put a spiritual truth into easily understandable language. As a general rule, parables were just practical stories that had one application to life. You know, you can learn other things in and around it, but there was usually one central truth to the parable. And that's why every one of these that we look at, we're going to look for what I've called the moral of the story. What's the main point that Jesus was driving home? So, and then specifically as well, what's the application to our life today and how we live for Jesus? The parable that Jesus told to this lawyer is a great example and a great place for us to start. So Jesus tells him this story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. The literal word in the original language is uh, dangerous, violent men. Uh, They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. To Jesus' Jewish audience, the people he was speaking to and telling this story, the geography of this story, the details of the terrain were really clear to them. There was one road that led from the city of Jerusalem to the city of Jericho. That road was a rough 17-mile journey. It changed elevation by almost 4,000 feet from 2,300 feet above sea level to Jericho, which was about 1,300 feet below sea level. It was a strenuous trip, not just because of the elevation change, but because you wound on this road through the mountains and and in and out of canyons and valleys. And there were great places along that road for bandits like this to hide, and robberies were a very common occurrence. So he's laying there half dead, and by chance, a priest comes along. And when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road And passed him by. Then a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. There were, according to history, about 12,000 men who were priests or temple assistants who lived in the city of Jericho. They knew this road. It was a commute for them, not on a daily basis, but they would make this commute to and from. Jericho several times a year. This was a familiar happening to them. I don't think they were necessarily bad or evil people. I think they were just busy. They had their own agenda. You know, they're on their way back to Jerusalem. They've got to get to work. They're on their way to Jericho. They've got to get home to their families. They see this man by the side of the road, and like so many others, he could just simply be bait in a trap. And if they stop, they'll be beaten and robbed as well. Or maybe they'd just seen this scenario too often. And they'd simply grown calloused. Whatever their reasoning, they walked by without helping him. And this is where the parable breaks uh, the storyline that they had come to expect in their day. You would tell a story like this. I mean, it's the, the priest is the pinnacle, Right? He is respected in the community. He's a religious leader. He's an expert in the law. So he's set up as the first person who comes by. The second one is just a step lower. 
Some translations of the Bible would refer to him as a Levite. He was a temple assistant, taking care of some of the menial chores around the temple in order for it to function. Didn't have the respect of the priest, wasn't able to teach like the priest, but played an important role. If you follow the thread of these stories, there would be a third character. That one would logically be a devout Jew who would become the figure that's heroic in the story. But Jesus flips the script. And he says, and then a despised Samaritan came along. There was bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans. That's historically documented. The Jews and the, to, the, to the Jews, the Samaritans were half-breeds and heretics. In casual conversation, their hatred for them would leak out. They wouldn't even say the word Samaritan. They would refer to them as those stupid people. Some of them, especially religious leaders like the priest and the temple assistant, would pray every day that God would not allow the Samaritans into heaven. Or if he did, that it wouldn't be in their neighborhood. There was this animosity between them. The idea of a good Samaritan was the ultimate oxymoron to a Jew. It's really tough to put something in that same perspective for us this morning. I thought a lot about this. It might be like us saying the good IRS agent or the good Packers fan. That probably comes closer. (laughs) Really hard to picture. So there was some bad blood, right? You got the picture. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and he took him to an inn where he took care of them. The next day he went to the innkeeper and he handed him two silver coins and said, take care of this man. And if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. One author said the best way for us to understand this parable and the risks that the Samaritan took in saving this Jewish man who was dying by the road, the best way would be for us to imagine an American Indian walking into Dodge City, Kansas in 1875 with a scalped cowboy laying across his horse's saddle. Imagine that Indian then going into town and checking into the local hotel that was just above the saloon. He carries the cowboy up. He takes care of him all through the night. There is not a single person in Dodge City, Kansas, who would have questioned what happened here. They would have just assumed that he had been beaten up and scalped by the Indian. It would have been the same response for the Samaritan in our story who walked with this man into Jericho. Jesus, with this simple story, turned this lawyer's world upside down. The question that the lawyer had originally asked in the discourse was, who do I need to serve? Instead, Jesus gives him an answer that says, this is what compassion looks like. This is the kind of person you need to be in order to show compassion. This is the kind of behavior you need to exhibit towards people who are not even close to you if you want to get into heaven. And he closed out the story with a question to the lawyer. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. 
the, the animosity is still not gone. It's just subtle there. He wouldn't say Samaritan, so he just said the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, you're right. You go and do the same. The focus of compassion is not, who do I have to serve? That's what the lawyer was asking. The focus is, who do I want to be? What is my identity in Christ? What am I called to be? And the key to this whole parable, the moral of the story is found in one simple statement. He felt compassion for him. In Greek, that word compassion means he was deeply moved. He was shaken up, kind of like a a jar that you'd put some river water in and the silt would settle to the bottom. And you just take that jar and you shake it with all you've got and it's just jumbled up. It's a mess. You can't sort it out inside. Compassion does that to us when it gets a hold of us. It shakes up our values. It, It changes how we see and serve people. We start to serve all kinds of people. People we barely know. People who hold different political opinions. People who have different religious beliefs. People we dislike. And as much as we hate to admit it, people we hate. If we're looking for the moral of the story, it's this. Compassion is not an obligation to be fulfilled. Compassion is the love of God tangibly expressed from a changed heart. Once we fully understand just how lost we are without Christ, just how lost we were when God saved us, it will radically change our heart. And that gratitude will show up in very real, very tangible acts of love to a myriad of people who cross our path. And it starts because compassion just begins to change how we see things in this world. The Samaritan saw things differently. The man by the side of the road wasn't a casualty of a political or religious conflict. He wasn't a victim of his own bad decisions. The half-dead man in front of him was a person in need of tangible compassion. The Samaritan's actions were radically different than the other two who had gone by or even what people would have thought typical of a Samaritan. He was willing to get involved. The Bible said, says he poured wine to help ease his wounds. He poured some in the wounds for a disinfectant. May have poured some in him just to help with the pain. He poured oil into the wounds as a salve to bring comfort. He bandaged the man. And I'm not guessing that he had the luxury model donkey that came with a first aid kit. So when he bandaged the man, it meant that he reached into his bags and pulled out his own clothes began to tear strips of cloth and bind those wounds. This Samaritan was willing to inconvenience himself to serve someone. He would walk the balance of 17 miles into Jericho while the stranger rode atop his donkey. He acted on the compassion he felt. And all this happened because it started with the simple act of seeing the man. Really Seeing his needs. Which begs the question for you and me. Do we see the world around us? Are we paying attention to our neighborhood, to our workplace, to the houses on the road as you drive to work? Do you know that house in your neighborhood that looks like it's just gradually running down? 
What's the story in that house? Is it an older couple? Maybe one of them's sick. They just don't have the wherewithal to maintain it anymore. Is it a single parent who's lost a spouse to divorce or death? They're struggling just to keep everything together in the maintenance on the house. That's the last priority they've got. Our biases can taint our vision. So that all we see is a people group or a problem that needs to be solved that's somebody else's responsibility. But here's the problem that keeps us often from getting involved. Compassion can get messy. If we stop and ask about that house, we're going to have to do something, and it's going to get messy before it's over with. Tangible expressions of compassion require us to get personally involved in the need. The Samaritan didn't stand on the opposite side of the road and throw bandages to the man and say, I hope you get better soon. Pray for you. He got down off his donkey and personally cared for this half-dead man. It was messy to clean and bandage his wounds. I can imagine that the blood that was pouring out of this man left permanent stains on the Samaritan's clothes, on the new saddle, on his donkey. He personally cared for him. And it got messy. You know, I've seen this over time, that just about any time we engage in acts of compassion, there's going to be some mess. The first time uh, I took a group of people into the city of Austin, I'm sorry, into the, the community of Austin in the city of Chicago. It's one of the roughest neighborhoods in Chicago. We went in, we were working with a church there, doing some rehab work on their church building. And when we got done, we came out to our vans at the end of the day to go home. The tires and wheels were gone. I hadn't experienced that in the suburbs. So I went back in and I grabbed Amy, who was leading the serving project with us, and told her what had happened. She just laughed and said, welcome to the hood. Went, really? She goes, yeah, call the cops. They probably won't come. I called Chicago PD. They said, yeah, write up your report and email it to this number. I'm like, what? Well, it's a dangerous neighborhood. It just happens. It's like, really? Uh, you're not even going to come and do a report? Nope, no need. It got messy to go and serve there. We, I went with a team to, first time I was ever in a third world country, we went to the Dominican Republic and we served in a very poor barrio outside the capital city. And it was just after the hurricane. And we thought that was going to be the mess we encountered. Biggest mess we encountered was the individual who was leading the international organization's local chapter that was trying to do some help. He was, the nicest way I can say it was he was a racial bigot. He was Puerto Rican by birth, and I didn't realize there was this racial issue between the Puerto Ricans and the Dominicans, but he used all kinds of slurs and slangs about the Dominican. It got messy before we cleaned that one up. Here locally, when I think about this, probably the biggest messy situation we walked into was last year with the toy drive at Christmas that we did for the families that are served by Huff Elementary. It got messy. We had hundreds of families in this building for the first time. We had no accurate picture of who was going to show up when, when uh, we opened the doors that morning. We were providing a breakfast with Santa in the cafe and a workspace upstairs for the kids to do some Christmas crafts while the parents shopped in here for toys for their kids. People who tend to run by strict schedules, rules, systems, processes were completely jacked up that day. 
It just did not happen that way. It was messy from the, day the, from the time the door opened till it closed. And it rocked. It was awesome. It was the highlight of Christmas for me, and I'm sure for many people who stretched themselves and walked into the mess and served these families. Hey, shoot, it was, it was worth it just to see John Doyle dressed up as Buddy the Elf. I'm telling you. Tangible personal expressions of compassion will not be safe, will not be easy, and they will push us beyond our comfort zones. And we have to be willing to dive into the mess and to love people who may be hard to love in circumstances that we don't understand. But I can promise you, it is always worth it. Diving into those situations that are beyond our control will stretch our faith. It's only when we dive into situations that are beyond us that we really are exercising faith. When we're doing something that's so big that if God's not in it, we're going to fall flat on our face, that's faith. And when we do this, we discover that there's no mess that's too big for God to dive in. There's no place that his mercy and grace can't cover. One more thought about compassion. Compassion will almost always cost us something. The Samaritan, for him it cost him time. I am confident that he was a businessman. He had places to go, people to see, deals to make. He was on his way somewhere, and he had to set his own personal agenda aside to serve this dying man. Most of us at Westridge, most of us are very busy, busy people. We have lots of plates spinning in our life between work and family and fun and personal health and just the stuff of life. And when compassion captures our heart, often one of our first responses is, I don't know how I'm going to jam that into my schedule. Compassion cost the Samaritan time. It cost him a significant amount of money. He left the innkeeper that day with two silver coins to pay the bill. What we don't get in the passage is the understanding that that was about two full days' wages. That's a lot of money. How many of us in the room this morning have at our disposal, in our pockets right now, two days' wages to invest in compassion if we, will, if we found someone in need? And would we willingly surrender it? My next statement is going to make you very envious of my life and my job. I'm confident of that. I spent a fair amount of time on the web this week diving into the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics website. You jealous? No, don't be. But I did it for a reason. I wanted to figure out just practically what does that two days wages mean, right? So first I had to figure out there's 261 working days in an average year. Um, and so what we have to do is find the median household income. Divide it. This, is, this is for all the nerds in the room, by the way. You can come back in about 30 seconds if you're not a nerd. Um, divide the median household income by 261, multiply it by two, and you've got the equivalent of what this man left, this good Samaritan left with the innkeeper. So here's what it comes out to. If you live in Elgin... The median household income is about $60,000 a year. That means two days' wages is $460. 
If you live in St. Charles or if you live in South Elgin, that number jumps to $670. If you live in Geneva, it's $760. Now, it's really clear to me from the statistics, I need to move to Geneva so I can be more generous. I don't think that's it. You don't have to pull your billfold or your wallet out this morning. Don't have to dive into your purse. You know if you've got that kind of money at your disposal. Whether it's in your cash with you or in your checking or savings, that you could be that generous. The question is, could you be? If a need presented itself on the way home, could you be that generous? I think that's the biggest benefit to managing our money well as believers. Yeah, we need to learn how to spend well, save well, invest well. But the biggest benefit to me on this side of it is we get to be far more generous in our life. We've got that capacity. Sometimes, you know, we have the margin in our budget. We can do a big thing. Sometimes it's just small things. We can begin to have a compassionate heart in small ways and grow our compassion. A few weeks ago, I was in Starbucks. Uh, Yes, I'm an addict, and no, I don't want your support group. Um, I I was in there. The line was long, and my appointment had canceled, so I thought, you know, I'll just, I'll get something to go, and I'll head back to the office. For those of you who go to Starbucks, it was going to be a grande blonde iced vanilla latte with two pumps, just so you know the level of my addiction. So I was standing there, and I was looking at something on my phone, and I got distracted, and realized that this was taking a while. I mean, we were down to one guy between me and the barista, and it's like, it's taking a while. And and I got just a little concerned, and then I started to look into what was happening in the situation. So the guy was there. He had his phone. He'd opened up the Starbucks app. He was getting ready to pay. It scanned, and it came back. He didn't have enough money in his app. At which point the barista tried to turn into an IT consultant and help the man figure out how to load the money onto his phone. And that was getting frustrating. For the barista, it was getting frustrating for the guy because they couldn't get it to work. He couldn't remember his credit card number and he didn't have his wallet. And this was getting really long and drawn out, kind of like the story this morning. And so I stood there and I don't always do this, but I just, this point, I heard a little whisper from God going, hey, your appointment canceled. You're going to buy that guy's coffee. Just by his. About that time, I started hearing those heavy sighs behind me, you know, of people who were in line behind me going, <sighs> you know, you communicate a lot without saying anything by doing that. And so I just pulled out my phone, opened the app, and reached around him and scanned it. The barista instantly smiled. He went, thanks. The guy was instantly flustered. He had no idea what had happened. And so when the barista explained it to him, he turned around and looked at me and he went, well, well thank you, thank you, but I was going to, I mean, it was, it's okay. He goes, uh, are you going to be here for a few minutes? I'll go to an ATM, I'll get the money, I'll bring it back. I said, no, really, no, it's, it's okay. You find somebody later on who needs something, just pay it forward. It's my, my treat, my pleasure. So he went on his way, I got my drink, and I left. You know, um, I'm grateful in that situation that I listened. He wasn't half dead by the side of the road. That wasn't the guy I helped, though I did discern that if he didn't get his coffee, that could very well happen. It wasn't two days' wages that I invested in that act of compassion, even though it was Starbucks. And I hate 
I hate telling stories where I come off as a hero and the one who did stuff right. Because, I mean, the step from hero to zero is a quick one, and I make that step often, like many of you. I'm just thankful that in the moment I listened to the soft whispers of God and I showed compassion in a tangible way. Because lots of times those situations in our life are just an inconvenience. That kind of compassion, whether it's buying someone's coffee at Starbucks or helping someone who's severely injured and life is threatened, those acts of compassion in our life get to the core of this whole following Jesus thing. When I say I want to follow Jesus with my life, it means some things are going to radically change. I'm going to be different than the rest of the world because I'm following what Jesus would have me do. When we realize the full extent of God's grace and goodness in our lives, it ought to move us to compassion in tangible ways. We'll open our hearts. We'll open our calendars because we see people and we see situations differently. It'll cause us to set aside our plans and wade into the messes that we see in our community and in our world. And it will cause us to follow through with acts of compassion that impact our wallet and our calendar. Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan calls us to be a people not just who know the right answers, but who live them out on a daily basis. He calls us to be people who open our eyes, live with our eyes wide open, see the world around us as it is. We see people stranded by the side of the road, we stop and help. We're in the grocery store and we see this person in a wheelchair or just a short person who can't reach that item on the top shelf. And we stop and help. We see a stranger walking around in the city who looks lost. Or somebody walking around our church building who looks lost, and we help. We see them as a person with a need, and we feel compassion. It's our first response. It's how we view the families that live in the neighborhood and are served by Huff Elementary. Our heart gets messed up, shaken up when we're in that community. We love them and we serve in the name of Jesus. It's why we do what we do in Nicaragua and why we love those people so deeply because we're there to show the compassion of Jesus in water clean water for them to drink, in education, in sustainable jobs that can make a better life for them. The call to follow Jesus is a call to open our eyes and see the needs. To set aside the limits and the restrictions and the boundaries and the safeguards and the excuses that keep us from serving them. And to recklessly and tangibly on a daily basis, express the same kind of love and compassion to them that God has shown to us.